good to be with you again and to focus in the Advent season on the promised one. You might uh, sometimes try to figure out who people are. And if you would ask them the question, who are you? What's the typical response that we give? You know, like if you ask me, who are you? I would be, I would tend to give you the, the answer, well, I'm, I'm a pastor. But I don't think that's typically what you and I mean when we ask people, who are you? We want to know something deeper than that. We want to know things like, can I trust you? Are you a good character or a bad character? Are you somebody who could be my friend? Are you somebody who would have my back? Are you somebody who I could turn to if I need? Are you reliable? Will you be there for me? When we want to know someone, we want to know beyond the surface level of what they do. But our typical reactions is to put forward what we do as maybe just a record and certainly kind of a, just a, a call to look at what we have done, maybe to point towards who we are. But that's insufficient. It's only in the Lord Jesus when we ask that question of him, who are you? And we see what he has revealed about himself, that we get that answer that our hearts long for. We find the one who is reliable. We find the one whose character backs up the claims that he says about himself. And we know in the next four weeks as we study Isaiah 9-6 and ask that question of the Lord Jesus, who are you? We're going to find out who he is in terms of this theme that we're looking at, the promised one. As we see his names that we just sung, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. As the preachers in here give you an exposition each week of one of these names, it's an invitation to slow down a bit and to approach Jesus again and to ask him, by the help of the Spirit, to reveal to you who he is, what he's all about, and what he is still to you today. And today, we're going to learn about Jesus as the wonderful counselor. I'm going to do my best to not step on the toes of other preachers as they get up here to give explanation of the other names of our Lord. I can step on the next guy's toes because it will be me. I'll be back in here again. So if I do that a little bit, it's okay. But today, I do want to give due consideration of this one title, Wonderful Counselor, as we approach it in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Let's look at verse 6 again. Look at your text, and let me read that again as we get into the main points of today. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let me pray, and as we get into our main points today, we will see the good news of this coming king, our need of particularly the wonderful counselor and the ministry that he offers to us. But would you join me in pray? Heavenly Father, thank you 
Thank you for the gift of the son. Thank you for the child that was given once at the first advent. Thank you that we look to him, the Lord Jesus Christ, today as our wonderful counselor. Help us to know what this means and help us to know you better. Reveal yourself to us and counsel us today in our need. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the first place, let's look at this theme of Advent. Jake started off our service today by drawing our attention to these four weeks, and Advent really is about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He came once, long ago, and he is coming again. But long before he came, 800 years, give or take, Isaiah prophesied about his arrival here in Isaiah chapter 9. And I want to look at, in the beginning here, the context of this story. For the next four weeks, we're spending time here, and I want you to have an understanding of how we get to this place in the story of Isaiah as he addresses the southern kingdom of Judah, its king and its people. So Isaiah chapters 8 and 9 was written to, as I said, the southern kingdom of Judah. As you might recall, after King David died, Solomon, his son, reigned, and upon Solomon's death, the kingdom divided. There were 10 tribes of the northern kingdom, and that was called Israel, and down below you had Judah, and Judah was the stronghold of David. This is when you think of Judah, you can think of Jerusalem. You can think of the kingdom as it was in the time of David and Solomon in the right place, but just divided and fractured, right? By this point, the northern tribes are being picked off and taken into captivity. And as the king down in Judah considers all this, he's scared. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah went to him and gave him an opportunity to trust God. And he said, ask God for a sign, any sign, as big as heaven and as low as, as hell. Ask him for anything and he'll do it to verify his trustworthiness to you. But Ahaz, in false humility, said, no, no, I, I won't ask the Lord. I won't test him in that way. And he lost the opportunity to see God do an amazing work in Judah. Now, by this point, Ahaz had shifted in his allegiance away from God because he was a wicked king to trusting the Assyrian nation to the north to come to his aid. You know, you consider even now Jerusalem sits in a region of the world where it's surrounded by enemies, right? Nothing is new. It's, it's that way when we consider what was happening here in Isaiah chapters 8 and 9. Ahaz is quaking in his kingly boots because he knows he has turned away from God, but his heart is darkened and he doesn't care. Instead, he's trusting, he's putting his hope in political alliances. And as we come to Isaiah chapter 8, chapter 8 begins with this declaration of the Lord to Isaiah, and he says, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters. This is the message he was to put on it, belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz. <laughs> this is interesting. Like, imagine driving down, you know, the interstate and seeing a big billboard on the side of the road that says, belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz, that that would not mean anything to you and me. 
It would just be weird. We might think it was put there by a cult. But in this time, and if you follow a footnote down to the bottom of your Bible, you likely either have the translation down there or in the text itself, it has been transliterated for you. And it's another way of saying the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. So it was this ominous warning that was to be written on this large sign that God told Isaiah to put up so that the people of Judah would read it as they went about their daily business. The king hasn't listened to God, so God says it's time for the message to get out to the masses. And as the people see it, it would have created a fear in them. So like, imagine if you took some of the biggest world enemies that are out there right now in some of the most volatile regions and said, this country is coming for you. This country is about to drop the bomb. That would hopefully wake you up and you would begin to ask some very serious questions. God was intent that people wrestle with the reality of his sovereignty over the nations and that just because you're a nation now doesn't mean that you're going to be a nation forever. God wanted people to wake up to his one kingdom that for all time had been intended to be in place. King Ahaz had rejected that. What would the people do about it? Well, Isaiah had a couple of kids, and the story gets a little strange, but that sign that said, belonging to Meir Shalal Hashbaz, he actually named one of his kids that. And he went into his wife, she gave birth, and they named this boy Meir Shalal Hashbaz, which is the spoil hastens and the prey speeds along. So that boy had an odd name, but he was a sign to the people. Everywhere that Isaiah went, there was his son. The enemy is coming and he's about to drop the bomb. <laughs> kind of a strange name, yes, but again, pointing to the spiritual realities, the physical threats and the spiritual realities that the people needed to wake up to. So in chapter 9, verse 2, we read this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. From chapter 8 to chapter 9, we see a radical shift in what's happening in terms of the darkness of the impeding threat to now where there was all this gloom and anguish and fear, all that's been wiped away and what we're dealing with in chapter 9, verse 2, is a prophecy of something that is going to happen. It's so certain that Isaiah speaks as if it's already done. And this is what I've taken away from this portion of the text so far, that God speaks, and when he speaks, his word is sure. When he gives a prophecy of something, it's as good as done. And our response should be faith, trust, and seeking to understand as much as we can about what God is saying. And with patience, waiting for him to unravel his good plan amidst, admittedly, the chaos when an enemy is about to drop the bomb on you. You see, God intends for us all the time you know, Advent is a good refresher of this, but all the time, God wants us to draw our attention away from the tensions of this world only. 
and to remember his sovereign plan and goodness to unveil the next phase of his kingdom. It's not just about making things perfect for us, although we get to receive that. As you go down through chapter 9, you see things like, you know, the people are going to enjoy this peace, this era of peace that is unprecedented. That all of the garments that have been used by the soldiers that are just drenched in blood are just going to be burned up in a fire. That the instruments of war are going to be melted down, they're going to be subdued. And that there won't be any soldiers tramping in threat to overthrow the nation anymore. What's more than that, the nation, which seems to be shrinking as they're taken into captivity and as they're oppressed and killed, when God gives this prophecy, it's a prophecy that the nation has actually exploded in growth. It's gotten so big that it encompasses the whole world. This is a grand vision of something that's coming that will not be just about the Jewish nation, but about all of us who have been swept into the promise of God. We're living in a partial fulfillment even now. As I look out at you, and I see how God has brought you in to this stage of his story. Out of darkness, into light. God calls on you and me to have trust in what he's doing, but how ultimately has all of this come to be? It's happened because a child has been born. A son has been given. Verse 6, again, that's our text. It tells us that. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And then we see that all that stuff that is promised and prophesied at the beginning of chapter 9 is a given that it will happen. And the language is so certain that it's as if it has already happened. One commentator says this. He said it's, it's not just that the emphasis falls on what the child will do when he grows up, right? That could be one thing. We look at a promise that a child is born and that when he grows up, he will be this powerful king. But the emphasis is on all the results that come once he arrives. You see, the things that we are learning today and over the next several weeks about who this king is, they are as certain as his arrival. We're not seeing him born and then have to wait. His arrival secures these things. And that, that struck me as a point of faith as well. I have to see in what might seem the insignificant work of God, the mighty power of God. That's a story of Advent, God working through things that are small, things that have just maybe an insignificant beginning, but wrapped up in that one thing is a power that extends to you and me. And if we, by faith, hold on to God and his Messiah, his King, we will see these things come to pass, both in our lives and in the world around us. So, this is the point so far. The story of Advent is a story that goes beyond, you know, the decorations and the festivities in our homes, the 
gifts that we give. The story of Advent is a story that calls us back to faith, to solidity, something to stand on. And then that thing to stand on is a person. It's Jesus Christ. Advent is about the coming king who came once and will come again. And particularly, we see that he is in the first place called the Wonderful Counselor. And in the second place, I want us to get to our need of the Wonderful Counselor. Why is he called this? Why is this given priority among all the possible titles that could have been given to this coming king? Why Wonderful Counselor? There are two Hebrew words that make up this title, Wonderful Counselor. The first is wonderful. In Hebrew, it means extraordinary or miraculous. When you and I use wonderful, we might just mean kind of things like neat or great, um, cool, or it worked out well for me, or sarcastically, wonderful. Right, but when God uses it, he typically uses it about himself. And you consider a verse like Exodus 3.20, where God says that he will do all his wonders on the ruler of Egypt to deliver his people out of bondage in Egypt. You think about those wonders. Those are things like turning the sea blood, turning the light into darkness, multiplying frogs and locusts, having the firstborn child die by an angel of judgment, going over all the land of Egypt for those who did not place the blood over the doorposts. These were the wonders of God. It was the wonder of him separating the, the sea as the Israelites approached it and so that they were walls of solid water and dry ground for them to walk over. God is a God of wonders. And when we read of him in the Old Testament, our jaw is supposed to drop, our eyes bug out, because we don't know this category. This is beyond our, our expectations or our thoughts. This is what we are to think when we think of the Lord Jesus. He is a wonder. He's amazing. He should cause us to stop and to be amazed. And the second word, counselor, it, it really means leader or wise advisor. And contrary to our thinking, it doesn't mean psychiatrist. So you're not to think when you read this of being in Jesus's office, lying on a couch, and he's there with a clipboard asking you to describe your relationship with your father. Right? This isn't Jesus, it's not what he does. And we do, I want, I want you to get this, we do get from Jesus a personal relationship where he knows us, he digs deeply into who we are, and he asks us deep questions. We'll get to that. But in the first place, this word counselor has to do with a throne room more than a psychiatrist's office. There were wise counselors who were called upon by the kings of Israel to come in and give them counsel before they would go out to war. Now, what would happen if you had a king who needed no counselors? who knew the best course of action, who knew how to preserve people when there's a threat of war and annihilation, who knows the exact steps to take, you would wanna follow that king. You would wanna be in step with him. That's what Isaiah 
is saying the people of Judah need. When he said this, they didn't have a king like that. Their king had rejected God. He didn't receive good counsel. What they needed was a king who would lead them with integrity and know every single step to take. What we find in Jesus is both king and counselor in one. When he arrives, when he did the first time, this is how it was and it's how it will be again. When Jesus came, he established his authority and his credentials through miracles and signs, and then he preached the word of wisdom to lead people out of darkness and into light. He himself said, I am the light of the world, and called people to follow him out of darkness. And everywhere that he walked, touching people, healing people, calling people out of their darkness, it was as if the, the blanket, the oppressive blanket of spiritual darkness began to lift, and the people could see again, and they could feel again, and they could praise, and they would often jump, and they would praise the Lord. They would leave everything to follow this man who touched them and healed them, right? This is how Jesus is still operating today. When he touches your life, you can see, you can feel, you know, and you want to follow him, right? He is still the powerful counselor king, and it's a wonder to see him at work. But our need for him, especially when we consider Isaiah 8 and what was happening to the people of Judah, it's the same that tends to happen to us in every generation. We deal with darkness and we need light. Isaiah 8, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 8 and look with me at verse 19, there was a problem that Judah faced. When they had rejected God, they turned to every source of spiritual instruction and counsel they could. But look at what they were doing in verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. The point of this text is that trouble comes when we turn away from the living God. When we seek light and sources to help us away from God, when we think that there maybe is some other supreme source of instruction out there for us to help our lives work apart from Jesus, then we get into big, big trouble. Now, I notice in our country, as people continue to reject God, we are embracing more and more a type of neo-paganism that embraces all kinds of weird stuff. I'm not gonna start preaching on all those weird things. But Isaiah mentions too in his day, people were going to mediums and necromancers. 
These were witches and people who were trying to commune with the dead. Now in our day, there are dark things happening and our culture is presenting as an alternative to the living God a way to get some answers about the deeper things of life through spiritual means apart from what God has appointed. This is the danger. Whenever we give up the counsel of God, you know, we're not designed to be counselors to ourselves. We will always fill up that void with counsel from other places. For our country, sometimes I get the picture of that parable Jesus told about a man who had a demon. It was like in a, in a house. A man's life was like a house. He swept it all out and the demon left. And the story is that demon went out and found a bunch of others just like him and came back and he found the man's life unoccupied and said, hey, my old place is still available for rent and goes right back in along with all of the other demons that he had found. When we give up a desire for God's supremacy, first of all, as the people of God, that is a warning for us. We will be filled with something. We will be filled one way or another. And the counsel that we get will ultimately not be a source of light, but a source of deep darkness. But in the same text, if you would look just a couple of verses up, the attitude of the people of God is this, verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. This is the attitude of Isaiah and it's instructive for us as God's people. Our attitude should be, first of all, a recognition. We need good counsel. We need leadership. We need someone who can point out the darkness and help us avoid it and point the way to the light. Last night, I was here wrapping up some points of this sermon at the church. And before I left, we had read as a family a devotional about verse 2, people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And the devotional book said, you know, say to your kids, what would it be like if you suddenly had no light and you had to walk around and try to find things in the dark? And so a little bit later on, as I was here, my wife called me and said, hey, the power just went out. It's around 10 o'clock at night. Maybe if you were somewhere on Lovell Road, you experienced this as well. It was strange uh, for them. We still had power here at the church. Uh, but as they described it to me, and as they went around finding flashlights, getting things set up so that they could get things done there at home, it was really just kind of a, a visual, well, not really that visual, they couldn't see. But my son told me it was like a living example of what we had just talked about as a family. When the power goes out, we find just how vulnerable we are. And we need someone to help us. We need someone to point the way. When we don't see clearly, or when we feel that God is withholding a blessing on the people around us, the answer is not to reject God. The answer is to hope in God, to hold on to him, even though it seems like he is working a work of discipline. 
that we trust him. Our attitude is like the attitude of the disciples when people fled Jesus because his teaching got really hard. Jesus said, what about you guys? Where will you go? And the disciples answered, we can't go anywhere. Where would we go? You have the words of life. The attitude of the people of God is an attitude where we need Jesus. And we go to him and we express that. We feel it. And praise God, his ministry is the ministry of meeting that need. So I would just say, turn to the things that lead you to Jesus. Don't have anything to do with the unfruitful works of darkness. Expose them and move on and turn to the Lord Jesus. Because in the third place, his ministry to us is a wonder. His counsel is amazing. I just want to look at three things, and this is what we need to look at when we consider a counselor. You and I, as we have needs, you might go to somebody who offers you some counsel. The things that you want to look for are the person's qualifications, like what gives them the right to give you advice. Recently, I saw the the viral TikTok video of the young girl in her 20s who was crying about her nine to five job. I'm not here to speak against her, but what was funny to me was something that happened in the aftermath of that. Another 20-something girl came on TikTok and described herself as a life coach and talked about getting a lazy girl job. And her advice was to do this as a means to have the best of the personal time that is often taken away from a nine-to-five job and still be somewhat productive. You know what? I just struggle to think of the right qualifications in that girl. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not giving you a counsel to go to her for counsel young ladies. By the way, apparently even guys can have lazy girl jobs too. I just don't think it's the best thing. I don't think it's the best plan for your life. We need somebody who's actually qualified to give us advice, and not just advice. Counsel is different from advice. Advice from somebody is just like, well, I think you should do this. And then you can take it or leave it and say, yeah, thanks. And then maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't. Counsel and the weight of that word is different. It's talking about somebody who knows what you must do and then actually listening to that person and doing it. Right? There's, there's good counsel, though, and bad counsel. We need somebody who's qualified to give us good counsel. We need somebody who has authority to back up what he says and somebody who has an approach that draws us in, doesn't push us away. I wanna talk about what, what qualifies Jesus. Well, remember, the qualification was that he is a wonder. And the thing that qualifies him right off the bat, which is right in, in line with Advent, is his virgin birth. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 says of Jesus, Behold, this is from Isaiah, Matthew quoting and applying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. A virgin birth is impossible unless God does it. Jesus did not come to the earth with great power and authority. You consider his birth was from a young girl who was up in the regions that Isaiah 
And when he talked about it in Isaiah 9.1, he said, out of Galilee, Galilee of the nations, this king will come. Mary was up in Nazareth of Galilee when God called her to be the mother of the Messiah. The miracle of this is that his coming was not in great power, but like his coming as a child in Isaiah, the seed of his coming was as a child, but it grew into great power and authority. You see, his qualifications are, he is the one who is uniquely separated from us in terms of not receiving the sin nature. That's the virgin birth, but uniquely also one of us, having received the human nature that is a part of just being a man or a woman made in the image of God. He knows us, but he's not hindered or shackled by the sins that we commit and that we know. He is qualified. And his authority. The book of Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 4, this is right before the Sermon on the Mount that we've been studying every week here. When you consider good counsel, by the way, the Sermon on the Mount is good counsel. When we began that series here, I know that Jake talked about in that first week, you could go back and listen to that again, Jesus is unique. And he has the right to tell us what to do. And that we must obey him. If we are to grow, then we must consider who Jesus is and listen to him. The Sermon on the Mount is counsel. It's the deepest spiritual counsel. And it's countercultural to what we would think. But how did Jesus back it up? He showed his authority this way, verse 23 of Matthew 4. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. All the divided tribes are coming back together. They're all seeing this one who has come, who has unique authority. And it was the authority of Jesus shown through the signs of bringing peace, of healing people, of casting out the spiritual darkness that was there, Jesus revealed his authority and said, in effect, I am the promised king. I am the one who has come to be the wonderful counselor. This is who I am. And if you consider that the authority of God was challenged in the garden when the serpent said to the woman, eat this fruit and you will be like God. It was that bad counsel that deceived the woman. She was responsible for her own sin, but she was deceived by bad counsel. It is only fitting that God would fix the problem of the whole world by offering the wonderful counselor. And his unique authority is to point us to God where the devil drew us away from God and continues that work even now if we yield to him. 
Now, as we consider his approach, I want to share what I think is one of the best descriptions of Jesus also in the book of Matthew. But I want to set it up this way. I I was helped by a blog this week that talked about an experience that we often might have. You know, maybe you've gone to the doctor after having a pain for several weeks. You've been busy. You just haven't had time to get into the doctor. You don't really know what the problem is. But by the time you go, the doctor examines you, gives you some tests, maybe some blood tests, and then you have that meeting with him afterward. And he looks at you and he says, how long have you been having this problem? And you tell him, it's it's been maybe few weeks, few months, and he just shakes his head and he says, I wish he would come in a lot sooner because now it's going to be a lot harder to deal with this problem that you have. And that's very disheartening. I mean, on the one hand, you're glad to be where you can get some help, but man, it's just tough when a doctor gives you that kind of response. Or the hard news when you finally take your car that's been squeaking and squealing into the mechanic, and the mechanic says, ah, man, You've been driving with bad brakes for like, how long now? You're like, eh, it's been doing this, I don't know, better part of four months. Yeah, you're going to have to have your pads and your rotors replaced, and that's going to cost like 700 bucks. And then when you feel the price hit your wallet, you think, oh man, why didn't I take care of this sooner? Right? When it comes to our spiritual need and the approach of the wonderful counselor, He does not come to us and say, come on, why didn't you come to me sooner? What does he do when he finds us the way that we are? Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 to 21 is a prophecy made about Isaiah, or made by Isaiah about the wonderful counselor. Here's what it says. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will, procla- he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. I'm very encouraged by this text. Because what we see is the Lord Jesus giving us a description of who he is. On the one hand, he does not quarrel or cry aloud. He doesn't raise his voice. This description of him means that he is not out to promote himself. He's not out to silence other people. He doesn't raise his voice to talk over other people. He doesn't have to do any of that. When Jesus comes... He is filled with the Spirit of God, and you are drawn to him by that Spirit. He is unique and unlike anyone else. Furthermore, it says that he's described in essence by what he will not do. What he does is so wonderful that he begins in the description by what he will not do. And we find here that he will not break a bruised reed and a smoldering wick he will not quench. These are descriptions of some of the most weak plants and materials that people in this time period would have used. A reed was a plant that grew in a marshy, wet land. 
And a bruised reed was one that was hanging over and almost broken. A smoldering wick is something that you can imagine in in an old-fashioned lantern. A wick, maybe if it has no oil, it has no longer any flame coming out, and it's just smoky. And if it's just producing smoke, you can imagine a candle being that way. The wick really is no use being lit anymore. It's not producing any flame. The smoke is just getting everywhere. It's annoying. You know, our tendency, if we see something that's broken, we throw it away. If we see something that's just hanging on by a slight, you know, flicker, it's no longer a flicker, it's just a a smoldering, we tend to extinguish it. But Jesus doesn't do that when he comes to minister to people. When Jesus sees something broken. He doesn't chastise the brokenness. When he was at the well with the woman in Samaria, he did not look at her and rebuke her for all of her bad theology. He didn't talk to her about her wrong views of the Messiah. What did he do? He invited her to consider her lost estate by asking strategic questions over her about about herself and invited her to know him, the one who provided living water. You know, our response as counselors, if we ever offer counsel to people, it should be to know where people are coming from and to love them enough to listen, even when they say something that is completely against God's word. And instead of immediately jumping to correct that, backing up to find out why they think that. This is the method of Jesus. Jesus did not have an agenda to correct to the point of humiliating, but he corrected to the point of leading people to life. And there's a distinction. His approach as a counselor was to bind up what's bruised and broken and to give hope and healing and maybe some oil and some fuel to fan that smoldering wick back into a flame. This is the method and the approach of Jesus, the wonderful counselor. Now, I bring this all to a point, and I want to say, first of all, to any unbelieving friends who are here today, as you've learned about the need for counsel, Have you given your life to this one who who originally came? Do you see in his insignificant coming as a child the first time around, and as he grew into adulthood, the insignificance of the cross initially? Who would think that you could defeat death by dying? but this is exactly what he did. My non-Christian friend here, consider this today, that Jesus has proven that the greatest enemy you have, he has already defeated by his death on the cross. And your greatest obstacle to coming to him, your own sin, has already been put on Jesus, and he's carried that, and he's paid for it. Would you be willing to yield to him and that bit of light to you right now? And to my believing friends, this is what I would encourage you to do. I'm going to ask that the quote from Charles Spurgeon come up 
onto the screen. He said this, directly, God always goes to his object. And yet to us, he often seems to go roundabout. Instead of us having anxiety about what God is doing, instead of us trying to find ways to do things, let's go back to the Savior and go back again and again and again to the Word and learn to trust and to leave in the hands of providence the needs of our hearts to the wonderful counselor. In just a minute, we will have our time of the Lord's Supper, but consider these things, my friends. Our need and the ministry of the wonderful counselor and respond to him during this time. I will say that as we approach this time of communion, that this time is for anyone who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you belong to him, if you know that he has saved you, you belong to him. And this time of remembrance is for you. If you are uncertain of your state before the Lord today, then this is what I would advise you to do. Use this time, instead of taking bread and a bit from this cup, use this time instead of taking these things to pray, to seek the Lord, to yield to him, to ask him if you are experiencing the, the pull of his spirit to save you today. And for the rest of us, if there's anything that comes to mind as we think on this time. If there's anything in you that you know is wrong before the Lord, confess that. If there's anything that stands between you and another person, commit to make that right and see the broken body of our Lord and his shed blood as the provision for the forgiveness of all our sins.